This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, editor-in-chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. And today I have the great honor and pleasure of uh, having uh, uh, for our podcast guest, uh, Dr. Nicole Conson, uh, who is the president of the European Society of Gynecologic Oncology. She's in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Medical University of Innsbruck and also in the Department of uh, Gynecology and Gynecologic Oncology in Essen, Germany. Uh, Nicole, welcome and thank you so much for doing this podcast. Thank you very much, Pedro, for inviting me for this podcast. Absolutely. So the, the title of the um, of the manuscript that we're going to discuss, um, obviously a very important work is uh, European Society of Gynecologic Oncology Quality Indicators for the Surgical Treatment of Endometrial Carcinoma. So, uh, Nicole, I wanted to start um, by discussing as to why you and uh, the leadership of ESGO uh, thought it was important to um, put together a quality indicators for endometrial cancer. Uh, well, uh, Pedro, you're very much aware that uh, the ESCO has a strong track record in the development of guidelines and quality indicators. And last time that we recorded a podcast together, it was on the triple European endometrial carcinoma guidelines that we have uh, published in the International Journal Gynae Oncology at the beginning of this year and jointly developed with three European societies, the ESCO, the ESTRO, the Radiation Oncologist, and the ESPD Pathologists of Europe. And now this was the, well, natural follow-up step of these endometrial carcinoma guidelines to develop the quality indicators, which are uh, mainly based also on these guidelines in endometrial cancer surgery. Perfect. And um, I was wondering if you could also talk a little bit more about um, the design and the methodology of putting a project like this together. Obviously, it, it must have taken a tremendous amount of hours and effort. Um, and if you can speak about also the members of, of the group, what goes into selecting the, the members and the evaluation of the quality indicators? Uh, thank you very much for this question. Um, it's uh, it's uh, important and and it's uh, uh, to mention that we follow specific uh, SOPs in ESCO for the development of the guidelines and also the quality indicators. And uh, these SOPs, the cornerstones that we apply in the development, they are important to us because this makes our guidelines and quality indicators really unique. We have an ESCO methodologist, uh, François Planchon, and he does an independent systematic literature review for our products. And this, of course, has the big advantage that they are really uh, based on objective evaluation of scientific data. So he, he searched the literature uh, for potential quality indicators that have been published in the field and also the supporting scientific data to these quality indicators. And also a second cornerstone that is important is the external review. We send our draft guidelines and quality indicators to international uh, independent experts, uh, importantly, multidisciplinary 
experts uh, and this also happened with this new product we had more than 140 reviewers from more than 35 countries providing us with valuable feedback on the uh, proposed quality indicators uh, the second part of your question, the working group, uh, I'm very happy you mentioned this because I'm particularly grateful uh, to this amazing uh, bunch of experts that dedicated their time and effort into the development of this new ESCO product. I want to particularly mention Jan Persson, who was the co-chair uh, together with me of this project from Lund University in Sweden. We had a total of 17 gynae oncologists uh, involved in this project, representing a total of 13 uh, countries. And it was really a pleasure to work with these experts in the field and very informative. Yeah, what, what an amazing effort and congratulations for, for putting all of this together. Um, so obviously now getting into the um, actual um, uh, indicators, and I want to take advantage of, of your time with us, um, starting with the general indicators. Um, I'm particularly interested in uh, the, the point of case volume. Um, we know that there is data for ovarian cancer with regards to the benefit uh, to patient outcomes with regards to high volume centers. Do we have uh, equal data uh, in terms of outcomes being better for, for surgeons with higher volume or high volume centers for endometrial cancer? Yes, exactly. So we have this data for ovarian cancer and also for several other uh, tumor entities. It's, it's pretty well um, established and there are data that support this positive relationship between caseload, uh, volume, and outcome of patients. Uh, for endometrial carcinoma specifically, there is uh, nice evidence actually from a U.S. Uh, study based on uh, the National Cancer Database. Uh, in this database, more than 400,000 endometrial carcinoma patients are included. And there was uh, a significant increase in overall survival by hospital volume for all stages of endometrial carcinoma patients. And importantly, this also applied, this uh, hospital volume effect also implied, applied for all histological subtypes. Mm. So not only for the clear cell serous uh, carcinomas, sarcomas, but also for the endometroid uh, carcinomas. Yeah. So there are these data. There are also data on on complication rates um, related to high volume centers and a high surgical load of, of uh, surgeons. So there are these data also for endometrial carcinoma, yes. Yeah, and, and to add to that, you also mentioned the importance of a multidisciplinary team uh, when uh, coming up with uh, recommendations for our patients. Um, we know that certainly these are vital uh, to, to, to the outcomes uh, often associated with high volume centers. Um, uh, can you expand a little bit more as to why the group felt uh, that this was really important to highlight the, the input from the multidisciplinary team? 
uh, this is this is so important and if we uh, particularly in endometrial carcinoma if we consider the new developments in the field like sentinel lymph node procedure uh, with ultra staging for example or uh, molecular marker integration it's so clear that the pathologist uh, plays a crucial role in the management of these patients also systemic treatment um, advancements like we had now in in Europe uh, the approvals also for immunotherapy two approvals uh, so systemic treatment all the, the changes, it's such a, an amazing time, uh, these times now where we have so many advancements in the management of this disease that the interdisciplinarity of management uh, is really a very, very crucial topic. And of course, there, there is also evidence that for several cancer types that decisions made by a multidisciplinary team approach are more likely uh, to be in accordance with evidence-based guidelines compared to individualized uh, clinical decisions. So it's, it's really important to have all disciplines involved in the management of endometrial carcinoma patients uh, to together um, decide on the best treatment uh, for our patients. Great. Um, and now I'm going to actually uh, go on to um, so, some some of the things that obviously uh, I think are, are really impacting about this manuscript is, is the fact that for each of the indicator, um, the group provided the, the type of indicator, the description, the specification, and, and, the, and the target. And, and I wanted to ask a little bit more about that with regards to um, when considering how many patients uh, should be seen in order for a center to be considered an adequate center or a high-volume center for endometrial cancer, uh, the group pointed that at least a minimum of, of 50 patients per center. Um, how, how did they come up with this, uh, with this specific number? And some might say, well, you know, 50 may not be high enough to be considered a high-volume center. What would you, uh, what would you say? <laughs> that's a, that's a very important question and actually a critical question. Thank you for this, and it points out also the the difficulty, you know, uh, to finally really nail it down on a cut off value, which is very often the most difficult part because uh, what is the evidence really? Uh, behind it, can you really say this cut off and no other cut off is 100% the correct cut off? Of course, there is no evidence for such things. So, um, what what you address mainly is volume. So, what should be the cut off of volume? We have uh, you refer to 50 cases. We have two quality indicators uh, that are volume orientated. This is the first two, and they are really important to us. The one is number of newly diagnosed patients treated per center per year. And the second one is the number of primary surgeries per center per year. So this, this second one includes early stage and advanced stage. And for both of these volume-related quality indicators, we give 50 as the minimum uh, required target. And there is also an optimal target that we have defined, and this is for the number 
of newly diagnosed patients, we have defined it with 90. And for the primary surgeries per center per year, we have defined it with 80. So how did we finally set these cutoff values? And this is mainly we looked at the literature, what was described. Uh, I have referred already to, to this um, database uh, of the, the National Cancer Database of the U.S. And if you look at the curves, when do hazard ratios uh, change at, at which uh, numbers of patients they discriminate 25, 50, 100, more than 100. Uh, this is what, what the working group finally um, considered as 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 a feasible and and meaningful numbers uh, for center volume, but of course you can discuss: is it eighty cases or do you need hundred cases? I I think bottom line is that this is a strong message for volume. It's a strong message for centralization of treatment, and this was our aim. Uh, that we want to transmit in these two quality indicators. Very well. Um, and I also noticed there was a, a really important point, and uh, I'd, lo I'd love to hear your thoughts about this. Uh, you mentioned uh, the involvement of centers in prospective studies, and I think this is also really very important for the patients to be aware about this. Um, why is it that important, and, 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 uh, and certainly how strict is the criteria when considering quality of a center uh, as to whether they're involved in prospective studies? Uh, we have <clears throat> discussed this quality indicator a lot. We finally came up with prospective studies. Uh, so this does not only include clinical trials. It's all prospective uh, studies. This can be translational studies. It can be imaging studies. But we think it's, it's an important quality indicator. There are data, uh, for, for example, for ovarian cancer patients, a uh, nice German study from Andreas Dubois that showed that overall survival was significantly better in patients treated in study hospitals, so centers that offer participation in studies. And this might be a surrogate. For example, uh, they showed that these patients had a higher chance of receiving treatment according to national guidelines. So it might be related, you know, that these are centers that have to, uh, a better infrastructure or dedicated uh, teams really dedicated to the treatment of this disease. So we wanted to have this in as a quality indicator. And uh, we have also defined different targets. So the minimal required target would be participation in gynecological oncology trials in general, so not specifically endometrial carcinoma, but uh, for achieving accreditation as an excellent center. We would like to see clinical trial dedicated specifically to endometrial carcinoma patients. Outstanding. So now I wanted to get into uh, a number of uh, items, and, and certainly we don't have time to cover all of them, and I do encourage our, our readers 
to look at the um, quality indicators pertaining to the use of minimally invasive surgery, uh, the use of minimally invasive surgery in the obese population, um, the proportion of conversions. All of those items have been uh, covered extremely well and certainly encourage all to, to read them. Um, but I wanted to take advantage uh, of your time and having you as part of the podcast, uh, addressing some points where there may be controversies. And I'm glad that uh, those were addressed as part of quality indicators. Um, you talk about the role of omentectomy in the setting of uh, endometrial cancer, and I think that this is something that is often debated, particularly for the high-risk endometrial cancers like the serous carcinomas or the carcinosarcomas, and, and many would argue that many of these patients, really, they're going to have adjuvant treatment anyway in the form of radiation, potentially radiation and chemotherapy, chemotherapy alone, Um, where do we stand uh, from this group of experts with regards to the role of um, omentectomy in the setting of these high-risk patients? Mm, so we have included uh, the infracolic omentectomy in, as you mentioned, in specific histological subtypes, the serous, the undifferentiated, and the carcinosarcomas in our triple European endometrial carcinoma guidelines as a staging procedure. So these are really <clears throat> a staging procedures uh, as you, you have a high risk for microscopic or mental metastasis in, in an omentum that macroscopically uh, uh, is okay, but you have a high risk for microscopic metastasis in these histological subtypes. So for these subtypes, it's really part of staging uh, procedure. And the uh, argument <clears throat> that uh, this is not clinically relevant because of any way they will receive adjuvant treatment. Uh, if you look at our guidelines, it's it's uh, not like this anymore. So you can have, it, it makes a substantial difference if you have these histological subtypes in early stage disease, or if they have a mental metastasis and they are upstage and you have metastatic disease, the treatment will be different, particularly if you look at the, the new risk group, the prognostic risk group stratification. So early stage disease with these histological subtypes, you can have a totally different risk group stratification. Now also that molecular markers come into place, you can have serious early stage Uh, carcinoma, a pole immutation, and the patient will be automatically low risk and might not receive any adjuvant treatment. You can have uh, without myometrial invasion intermediate risk patients. You can have a high risk patient with myometrial invasion, P53 mutated serous. So it's really uh, the, the adjuvant treatment. It's, it's not uh, simply broken down by histological subtype only. You have different risk groups that and it makes a difference if this is an early stage or if this is a metastatic disease for adjuvant treatment decision. So it's still an important um, uh, staging procedure to be done. Excellent. So another point of uh, possible potential controversy and particularly patterns of practice uh, around the world may be very different with regards to lymph node staging and endometrial cancer. I wanted to ask you, you know, certainly are, are we at a point where we can just perform sentinel lymph node mapping alone? 
Can we stop doing lymphadenectomy when the patient maps bilaterally? Um, you know, you, you also mentioned that uh, more than 85% of patients should have sentinel lymph node mapping. Some might argue, why, why 85? Why not 100% of the patients? Um, what, what are your thoughts with regards to, uh, to this point? Uh, thank you, Pedro, for, for this question. This is particularly important uh, to our working group. Uh, we really aim to promote uh, sentinel lymph node procedure. Uh, we have it also in the Triple European Guidelines. This is one of the major advancements, I think, uh, besides integration of molecular marker, the sentinel lymph node biopsy. It is now considered an adequate alternative to systematic lymphadenectomy for lymph node stages purposes. So a negative sentinel lymph node is accepted to confirm pathological N0 status. And uh, this is this is really important and this goes along with substantial reduction in morbidity for our patients. So uh, we have quality indicators implemented that address this and, and support uh, the sentinel lymph node procedure. Actually, uh, we have the quality indicator with a target of 90% for the, for the proportion of sentinel lymph node procedure in presumed early stage patient undergoing lymph node staging. So if lymph node staging is done, the proportion of sentinel lymph node procedure should be 90%. And I think this is really a very, very strong message uh, to replace systematic lymph lymphadenectomy by sentinel lymph node procedure. And importantly, this does not exclude sentinel lymph node for low and intermediate risk patients also, because we, we state in our triple European guidelines that lymph node staging, of course, should be performed in high intermediate and high risk patients. And it can, a sentinel lymph node procedure can be uh, considered also in low and intermediate risk patients because only then you will really know if this is truly low risk disease or not. And in the high intermediate and high risk patients, you have the advantage of lower morbidity if you apply sentinel lymph node to substitute pelvic lymphadenectomy. But of course, I think what always needs to be mentioned in this content, which is key, that there is adequate uh, surgeon's experience and, and a very well-defined and structured surgical algorithm for sentinel lymph node procedure, a clear definition of sentinel lymph nodes uh, based on one and the best tracer, which is ICG. Yeah, and as a follow-up to that, um, with regards to the sentinel lymph node evaluation, I think you know, the, the manuscript uh, practically suggests that 100% of the patients undergoing sentinel lymph node mapping should have ultra-staging, and I think that's really important to highlight um, to those who are um, performing sentinel lymph node mapping. Um, can you expand on the importance of this? That's, that's so important. It, it's absolutely crucial that sentinel lymph node goes along with ultra-staging. So uh, the cooperation, again, interdisciplinary team, cooperation with pathologists is essential. 
Uh, what we know is that uh, ultra-staging increases the detection of low-volume disease, and this is a substantial uh, part of uh, metastatic lymph node disease. We know from prospective cohort data, for example, the Shrek trial, that more than one-third of patients uh, with ICG-mapped metastatic sentinel lymph nodes have small volume disease. So this covers both micrometastasis and isolated tumor cells, and you will miss this if you don't do ultra-staging. So it's really the package sentinel lymph node should come with ultra-staging. That's very important. Yeah. And uh, some of these uh, additional questions now came from uh, our fellows in the journal, going back to the point of, uh, of MIS. And one of the questions is, how, how did the committee come to the determination that the rate of minimally invasive surgery in obese patients should be greater than 60%? Um, so, first of all, uh, again, the, the minimal invasive surgery, uh, this is uh, very much promoted for early stage disease. Uh, in general, this is the standard of care. This should be the preferred surgical approach. And what you address uh, the obese patients, so it's um, there are data that women with high BMI benefit most of the minimal invasive approach. It uh, might be technically demanding, but they they benefit most, and therefore it was important uh, to us to stress this and address this also in the quality indicator about the actual numbers of cutoff. Uh, this is always the difficult part. You know, if this is, if you have a target of 60% or 70% or 50%, what is really the evidence behind it? There are no clear data on clear cutoffs that are clinically relevant, meaningful, feasible, etc. This is, uh, of course, always for the specific numbers. There is also, uh, ultimately, if there is no scientific clear evidence for the cutoff uh, expert uh, opinion that comes in into place. So our group finally uh, said that more than 60% is a meaningful target. Yeah. And would that be the same for the rate of conversion from minimally invasive surgery to open being less than uh, 10%? Uh, yes, I mean in the in the newer data, uh, you know, it it was very high the conversion rate in the in the older uh, trials in the GOG Lab Two, for example. But in the newer series, uh, the conversion rate of laparoscopy or, or robotic surgery, um, also for for uh, patients with high BMI, is six uh, percent or seven percent if BMI is more than. 40, yes. So we, we said it should be less than 10%, yes. Yeah. So now moving forward in a topic that you have uh, recently and, and uh, previously addressed, molecular uh, subclassification. And um, you mentioned that the optimal target should be 90%. Um, how feasible do you consider this is uh, globally, uh, particularly in low or middle income countries? Mm, this is... Uh also 
a clear message uh, that we want to send out that integration of molecular classification uh, is important uh, with also this cutoff. Uh, actually, I want to stress that this was the defined optimal target that you mentioned with 90%. We have a minimal required target of uh, 50%. I also want to stress that, of course, uh, when you talk about or address the critical question of, you know, accessibility, feasibility of, of doing this, we have particularly given two options uh, in our triple European guidelines on endometrial carcinoma management for risk group stratification, we give both options. The one option is if molecular classification is unknown, so simply based on clinical pathological parameters. And we give a second option uh, for risk group stratification based on an integrated approach when both is available, molecular marker classification and clinical pathological classification, which is, of course, uh, still uh, important. But I think in general, for molecular classification, you actually need three analyses to have the full characterization. And two of these three uh, can be based on simple immunohistochemistry, which is, uh, at least in, in Europe, uh, not a big deal anymore, I'd say. Uh, poly mutation analysis, which still require sequencing. This is indeed still a problem for feasibility, for costs, for accessibility um, to have this. But as, as said, it's, it's a message uh, that we want to send out. It's also, you know, if we integrate this quality indicator as a quality indicator, the centers have also a legitimation and an argument in their hands to promote this at their center. Mm -hmm. So this was also important for us. And actually, uh, the optimal target of 90 it's a really a requirement for centers of excellence, but it's not an absolute requirement for regular accreditation. So if, if the other quality indicators uh, reach a high level, you can still uh, accredit your center Very for well. endometrial surgery. Excellent. And uh, one, one item that I was really glad to see that was included was the standardization of operative reports. Um, tell us uh, about that and what that entailed. Uh, well, uh, I think the, the standardized uh, operative report is really important. It improves uh, completeness of the surgical documentation, consistency of surgical documentation, and uh, uh, therewith you will get interpretable operative data, which is very important. There is no uh, internationally validated standardized surgical uh, reports, so our working group felt that it's important and valuable to have uh, to have defined some minimal requirements that should be in the report. Uh, a lot of parameters in there, uh, 
I mean, you, you can read. I recommend to really have a look at the, the manuscript. It's it's uh, the tumor spread, of course, if there is spread disease, lymph node evaluation, complications, blood loss, important for sentinel lymph node technique, of course, the tracer used, which sentinel lymph nodes have been removed, where was the location, post-operative residual disease, which kind of procedures, was it a debulking, was it a sentinel lymph node, was it early stage, uh, aim of surgery, curative intent, palliative, stage of disease, important also to mention if uh, the uterus could be removed intact or ruptured. So these are all very important parameters that, and this should be standardized in a, uh, a surgical report and really find in each report. Yeah, and I saw that uh, that you also did that for pathology reports, and uh, I encourage all of our readers to actually look and, and go through all of those details because I think we would all agree that um, a, a consistent uh, in 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 uh, obviously a, a pathology report that gives us the same information uh, is really critically important. And, and I wanted to jump into the uh, your requirements for morbidity and mortality conferences. Uh, I believe you said it at uh, at least the center should have four per year. Um, tell us a little bit more about the importance of that and, and why that number as well. Mm, well, again, you know, for the actual number uh, you can discuss, we set the target of four per year, so once every a quarter of a year, of course, you can have uh, more, um, but I think in general, it's, it's uh, uh, the group agreed that this is a very important quality indicator, that it's really crucial uh, in order to uh, improve the quality of care, that the quality is reviewed and evaluated on a regular basis, that complications are discussed, re-operations, re-admissions, uh, secondary transfer to intermediate or intensive care units, and of course all deaths, that uh, there is a thorough review of the data and discussion with the team in order to learn uh, from each case uh, and uh, in in order to improve the quality of care. It's very important to have these conferences. Yeah. And now, I um, wanted to ask you about a scoring system and, and obviously ESGO accreditation. So there's going to be a lot of centers that look to this and say, how does my center um, uh, become an ESGO accredited center? And the scoring system, and, and, and it's a follow-up to that question. Um, it's actually a question from one of our fellows, Cecilia Darin. Um, she asked, do, do all the centers have to fulfill every single quality indicator? Or is there one or two or three or any number of quality indicators that are much more important than others <laughs> to become ESGO accredited? Yes, so uh, this was really important to us that, um, you know, we want the, the aim of quality indicators in general, the ultimate goal is to improve care for our patients. And with, uh, with these accreditation processes that the ESCO does, 
and have already in place for ovarian cancer surgery uh, is in planning for cervical cancer and uh, and now is implemented for endometrial cancer surgery. Uh, this is very important to us because it makes the quality visible. It makes it visible for patients and for physicians to refer patients to. Um, so this is why we have set up a scoring system. Each quality indicator uh, is allocated a specific number, a score, and uh, for ESCO accreditation of centers, uh, 80% of the maximum score, so this is the defined cutoff, 80% of the score uh, have to be achieved in order to be eligible uh, for accreditation. We have uh, two categories defined for accreditation, analog to ovarian cancer surgery accreditation, regular accreditation, and centers of excellence. Uh, the basic need is 80% uh, of the maximum possible score, 80% have to be achieved. And then for regular accreditation, two quality indicators uh, need to be matched for the minimum requirement. And this is what we have discussed previously. This is quality indicator one and two that relate to volume. Mm -hmm. So the minimal requirement, which was the target of 50 primary um, or new diagnosis of patients per center per year and 50 surgical procedures, primary surgical procedure per center per year covering early stage and advanced stage disease. This is a mandatory minimal requirement uh, for general accreditation. So if you want these two are more important than others, mm -hmm. centers of excellence they have some more mandatory requirements. For example, for the volume quality indicators, they have to have the optimal target, which would be, as said before, 90 for primary, for newly diagnosed patients per year and uh, 80 for primary surgeries per year. But there are also some other um, quality indicators that are where the target is mandatory to be uh, achieved for centers of excellence. Some of them relate to sentinel lymph node procedure related quality indicators or, or molecular marker, as already said. So for centers of excellence, we really want them to have 90% uh, of molecular classification in all patients. Uh, they have to have use ICG for sentinel lymph node mapping, etc. So there are some quality indicators that we rate higher and are mandatory for centers of excellence. Yes, indeed. Very well. Um, next few uh, questions are from our fellows. And one of them is Eric Estrada from Guatemala. He asks, uh, as quality indicators obviously gain value uh, and are introduced in gynecologic oncology, um, their use can only be of value if they are universally interpreted in the same manner. How will ESGO ensure that quality indicators are applied consistently, universally? 
Yes, that's that's very important, and this was very important in the uh, developmental uh, process of these quality indicators. They have to be presented in a very structured format in order to be very clear and and uh, that they are uh, interpreted the same way universally. So uh, this is why we gave a clear description. Uh, of each quality indicator and particularly a very clear specification. So you have a uh, unequivocal definition, a clear definition of the quality indicator and a very clear target. This is uh, so important in order to be measurable. A quality indicator has to be measurable. So all these uh, items are provided for each a quality indicator, and uh, therewith we want to guarantee that they are interpreted the same way uh, all over the world. Excellent. And uh, next question is from Emma Allison from uh, Australia, and she has to do you have a, a plan or a goal date for centers to implement these guidelines, or um, do you have to review that process as it would seem some quality indicators will take? significant resources to implement at the institutions? Well, uh, we have defined these quality indicators and the self-assessment form to really allow uh, each center to to check their quality. To uh, So they have now a tool in their hands for self-assessment. So each center is free to apply the self-assessment and see where they stay, if they manage the 80% cutoff of maximum uh, score, which makes them eligible for ESCO accredited uh, center, or if they, they lay somewhere uh, underneath this cutoff level, and then it can be a motivation, of course, to improve uh, some of these quality indicators to implement ICG mapping. They have then also an argument in their hand to go to hospital administration and say, see, this is a quality indicator. We uh, should implement this. So uh, it's, it, we really want to encourage centers to self-assess uh, their quality. And uh, of course, they can apply anytime. They can improve some of the quality indicators in order to reach this cutoff of 80% and then apply for accreditation. So th this is exactly uh, how we would like to see this applied and the effect we hope in order to improve the care of our patients. Excellent. And uh, this next question is from Sarah Nasser. She's in Charité in Germany. And she has, how um, do we think that the quality indicators are going to impact the training of those who are um, uh, in fellowships or in, in programs at the ESGO centers? So uh, with these quality indicators and the accreditation process, we aim to increase the quality of care in the management of endometrial carcinoma patients. And of course, the higher 
the standard of care in the center is, the better uh, naturally and automatically uh, uh, is the training opportunities. Uh, we very much stress interdisciplinary approach. We stress center volume and thus give an incentive on centralization of treatment. Uh, we promote Sentinel lymph node procedure, which is, which is also included in the new ESCO uh, curriculum. So uh, actually trainees, fellows, uh, will hopefully with all these uh, quality indicators uh, implemented, be exposed to a higher number of procedure and to, you know, the, the standard of care, the recent advances in the treatment. So they will be exposed to these procedures and to the volume. So this automatically uh, comes along with improved training provisions for, for our future, our fellows. Well, Nicole, I know that I've taken so much of your time and I really appreciate it. I always enjoy uh, speaking with you, listening to you, always learn a tremendous amount. And uh, once again, obviously, congratulations to you um, and the team that put all of this together. This uh, always adds tremendous value to the readership of the journal, but also obviously more important to all patients with gynecologic cancer. So we really Truly appreciate uh, spending the time to discuss this with you. Um, and I think that we've all gained so much from uh, listening to um, your discussion of this very important manuscript. Uh, Pedro, I want to thank you. Thank you so much for this opportunity, for this interview. I'm uh, really in the name of the working group. I'm grateful uh, to you for for your amazing work with the International Journal of Gynae Oncology and for allowing us, you know, this is a great opportunity to spread uh, this product to spread the information and uh, overall this will of course help us uh, to improve the care for our patients the ultimate goal so thank you very much for this uh, great opportunity